Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Would you do that please? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 there in the New Testament. I am so thankful that Jenny and Kevin and myself uh, got to be here uh, with you on this Lord's Day and that we get to spend a week uh, with your young people, trying to invest in them and encourage them in the Lord. Uh, I say amen to everything that your pastor said. Our spirits do resonate. I feel like I'm at home today in a lot of ways other than the weather. Uh, the weather in Southwest Kansas is, is not as forgiving as the weather in Southern California. I'll say that. Like if, if we had the doors open to our foyer like you did, it would, it would be full of dust and tumbleweeds. And so, don't take that little, those little things for granted. That's pretty awesome here. And uh, your pastor has been so gracious. Uh, he encouraged us to fly in early and has taken such good care of us, allowed our family to rest the last several days. It's very timely for us and needed. And so, thank you, Pastor, so much for your hospitality. Uh, in that, I would love to say more and have a lot more to say. I hope you'll come back tonight and I can share my heart with you a little bit more just about how I feel about this church and, and the pastor and, and the staff here. But I think we need to jump right into the Word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Before I read, I'm going to announce my title and tell you why I'm titling the message this way. The title of the message is this, Embrace Your Shake. Now, I, I get that title from an artist named Phil Hansen whose story really is, is pretty amazing. In art school, he began to develop a tremor in his hand. For years, he had worked toward becoming an expert in pointillism, which is a technique where the artist uses these small, distinct dots to form an image. Years of tediously making tiny dots had led to permanent nerve damage, making it impossible for him to hold his hand steady. And, and so as Phil explains it, his signature ability, making beautiful images out of these small perfect dots, became his signature disability. His strength became his weakness, and he even had to quit art for a while. Thankfully, though, one day his neurologist said something that stuck with him. He said this, Phil, why don't you just learn to embrace your shake? Phil went home, thought about that. And he eventually started experimenting with art again, and the most incredible thing happened. That shake that he had thought destroyed his artistic ability became what inspired his most powerful work. As he explains it, he learned how to turn his weakness into a strength. Phil realized that, that what he thought were his limitations actually became a catalyst for his greatest creativity. He even became convinced of this dynamic so much that he wondered what kind of art he could produce if he intentionally put limitations on himself, even more than just his shake, his tremor. He thought, what if I could use only one dollar's worth of supplies? And he did. What if I could paint, but I couldn't use a brush? And he did. What if I had to rely on other people via the web to come up with my content for me? I just listened to them explain it, but I, I didn't see what I was supposed to paint. And he did. He learned 
to embrace his shake and discovered that the art created out of weakness ended up being his most inspiring pieces. He explains it this way, we need to first be limited in order to become limitless. That's an inspiring story, but if we're honest today, in our lives, in our culture, it's not easy to embrace our shake. It's not easy to embrace our weaknesses, and here's why. We've grown up learning we need to highlight our strengths and hide our weaknesses. We're not taught in the United States of America as kids to embrace our limitations. We're conditioned by our culture at large to be embarrassed by them. So much so we often to, we just refuse to, to admit they even exist in our lives. I mean, wouldn't you agree we live in a culture that celebrates strength and almost condemns weakness? After all, we are the Americans, not the Americans. It's not just true today, it was true in the first century world as well. When the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, he knew the idea of embracing weakness would be very difficult for them to swallow, and and that was because uh, Corinth was a setting of strength. It was a setting of accomplishment, a place our country would recognize because it emphasized things like self-reliance and self-indulgence and self-help and self-everything. Even the Corinthian style of architecture, if you study it, was characterized by these massive columns. They had this amazing detail on it. They built those in their city primarily to portray the fact that they were strong people. What we'll see in our text is that Paul had been on a journey of learning how to deal with his own personal weakness. See, at first he hated it. He despised it. He would not embrace it. He even bade God to remove it. But over time, he learned how to embrace his shake. And when he did, he experienced a measure of strength through God's grace that he would have never experienced otherwise. Now he wants to communicate that to the Corinthians, these people that despise and disdained weakness. But here's what the Apostle Paul knows. In order to get a fair hearing, He's got to speak to them on their terms. So you know what he does? Back in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he digs up this resume that he used to clutch so proudly, and he uses it to meet the Corinthians on their own terms. Would you look in your Bible back at chapter 11 real quick at verse 21? Let's study together for a moment. I speak, Paul says, as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, but I'm bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, but I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Can you see that, that Paul can't even keep a straight face? While he's telling these things about himself, he says twice, I feel like a fool talking like this. I feel arrogant. I feel boastful. And him laying these spiritual credentials on this church doesn't even stop there. Look at the beginning of chapter 12. Verse 1, it is not expedient or profitable for me doubtless to glory. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, he's talking about himself. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, 
Watch this. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now, can you imagine this letter being read out loud to this church? And then them getting to the point where the Apostle Paul says he went to the third heaven. There had to have been just an audible gasp in the room. And what's most shocking to me, I don't know about you, but this surprises me, that Paul said this happened 14 years ago, and yet he's just now saying something about it. That's impressive. If I were Paul, I could not wait to tell you for 14 years that I took a trip to heaven and back. Within 14 seconds, I think I'm posting selfies on Instagram. Yet Paul didn't see fit to mention it one time for a decade and a half. In fact, here's how he introduced himself, a slave of Christ. We know that slavery in this day was no impressive credential to anybody at all. It was a place of utter weakness and utter submission to a higher authority. They had no rights. I want you to get what Paul's doing here. He's saying, church, I've got the background, I've I've got the Hebrew heritage, I've paid my dues. I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been imprisoned, I've been left to die, all but martyred. I've even taken a supernatural journey to heaven. If I wanted to make a spectacle about it, if I wanted to get arrogant arrogant about it, I could, and I probably would, but let me tell you why I don't. Verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of these revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. How do you stay grounded after being caught up to the third heaven? How? Here's how. You deal with some kind of problem you can't shake. One writer put it like this, Paul couldn't have his head in the clouds when he lived with a backdrop of significant pain, and so God gave him a thorn in the flesh. What was the thorn? Well, since this passage was written, it's been this ongoing debate. Almost senseless debate, people trying to figure out what it was Paul was struggling with. Here's the truth, we don't know what it was, and that's on purpose. I think the Holy Spirit led Paul to leave it vague so that it would be easier for us to fill in the blank with our own thorn, our own pain, our own emptiness, our own frustration, our own weakness. Here's what we do know about Paul's thorn. It was something painful. It wasn't a splinter. See, the the original word choice would be translated as spear or stake. It's more than a a head cold or or strep throat or a paper cut. This was something painfully difficult to bear. It was something we know that Paul wanted out of his life. He, He didn't just ask God to remove it. He begged God to remove it. Three times he said, God, take this out of my life. See, Paul was this this hard-driving overachiever, and this thing was slowing him down. I can imagine in in one of his prayers for for thorn removal, one of his three prayers, he said something like this, Lord, can you just imagine how much more I could do for you and for the kingdom and for the gospel if you would take this away? 
I'm not asking you to take this away to make me more comfortable or add to a more convenient way of living. I want to plant more churches. I want to mentor more missionaries. I want to encourage more churches and write letters to more churches. God, would you please take this away so I can be used for your glory to a greater degree? And as God denied his request three times, here's what happened. The Spirit of God patiently taught Paul something he didn't know, patiently formed his perspective and changed it, and it's what allowed Paul to embrace his weakness. Look at verse 9 and 10. I hope you're studying with me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You get what Paul's doing? He's embracing his weakness now. He's even finding some sort of pleasure in it. He's implying that, that this thorn has become a, a good thing. Now hold on a second. He was just asking God to remove it. Now he's rejoicing over it? How, how's that happening? What's happened in between his three prayers, prayers for thorn removal and now this worship song thanking God for the thorn? It's not that all of a sudden Paul enjoyed the pain of his thorn, or the inconvenience of it, or even the grief that it was bringing into his life on a daily basis, but his perspective of the thorn has changed because he was now willing to see the benefit of it. Get this, the pleasure wasn't in the pain. The pleasure was what the pain was producing in his life. Over time, watch, he had found that what he had wished away was the very thing that made him stronger. He learned that his weakness, his thorn, was an entry point for God's strength. In fact, he learned the weaker he was, the more of God's strength he could receive. Which is why he said in verse 9, for my strength is made perfect or complete in weakness. Verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now as I've read this and taught this in the past, I would have made the case that God works despite our weakness. And God works around our weakness, but that's not the real point. God doesn't demonstrate His strength even though we're weak. God demonstrates it precisely through our weakness. Do you remember the disciples, the twelve original disciples that Jesus chose to follow Him? Did He go to the Sea of Galilee and hold auditions? Say, the greatest preachers I will pick to follow me. The greatest evangelist I will pick to follow me. The ones who have the most Old Testament Scripture memorized, they will follow me. No, he just went to a couple fishermen, said, follow me, and they did, and the rest is history. In fact, it's their glaring weakness that made this so spectacular. 
Because you read the book of Acts, and Jesus ascended into heaven and left these guys responsible to preach the gospel and plant churches all around the world. And so they started doing that. Peter and John started preaching. They got in trouble for it. And they had to stand in the middle of the Sanhedrin, this intimidating group of religious leaders, or or this this justice system, this kangaroo court. And they said, "By, by, by what name or whose name do you speak these things? And what did Peter and John say? In boldness they said this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth we preach. The one that you put on the cross, the one that didn't stay dead. The one that went back up into heaven and seated on the right hand of the throne of God. That's whose name we preach in today. And what was those religious leaders' response? Now when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John, watch here, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. God was glorified, Christ was exalted, not despite their lack of education. Not despite their ignorance, not despite their lack of talent, watch here, but precisely because of it. It was their weakness that made space for God's power to be demonstrated. If that doesn't bring light to the truth I'm trying to get across, maybe the story of Corey Ten Boom would. Have you ever heard of her? She's the famous author of The Hiding Place, an account of her time as a prisoner in a German concentration camp. She wrote another book that's less well-known, and it's called Tramp for the Lord. She tells in this book about a woman she met in Russia during the Cold War when Christians were being persecuted. The old woman, Corey wrote, was reclining on a sofa. Multiple sclerosis had done quite a job on this woman. Her body, uh, Corey wrote, was twisted in every direction. She depended on pillows to prop her up. She had no mobility. So. Her husband's time was consumed with her care. The index finger of her right hand was all she could control. Nothing else, one finger. But Corey said, oh, what she got from that one finger. It moved across a typewriter keyboard all day and late into the night, typing out words and sentences and paragraphs, translating the Bible and other Christian books into her Russian language. Her husband watched and and noticed that it often took the wrinkled old finger quite a long time to hit a key, but on it moved letter by letter through the books of the Bible. And then Corey Ten Boom came to visit this woman. She looked at the the twisted skeletal frame on the sofa. She testifies that compassion overcame her, and she prayed, oh Lord, why don't you heal this poor woman? And the husband saw how deeply moved that Corey was. Here's what he says, I quote, God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police. But but because she's been sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone, and she's the only person who can translate undetected by the police. So it would be inaccurate to say that God worked despite her weakness. The truth is that God was glorified through her weakness. You'd feel sorry for that woman. You would pray her pain away like Corey Ten Boom prayed her pain away. But the thing that we would wish away in her life was actually a holy place that allowed a very weak woman to become a pillar of strength in God's kingdom. Are you getting the point? 
Paul's trying to get across that the thorn, though it made him weak and he hated it at first, was actually a good thing. And it was a good thing because it created the space necessary in his life for God's strength to be experienced. And the more he embraced his weakness, the stronger he became through it. You might be thinking, but how does that happen exactly? How does God's strength enter into my weakness? Do I have to say something? Do I have to read something? Do I have to pray something? Do I have to feel something? Because I want to experience God's strength in my weakness, but, but how? Well, verse 9, at least in red letters in my Bible, gives us the key. God's strength comes by way of His all-sufficient grace. And He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Now, if we're not careful, this can sound like Christianese. Preachers speak. And when we start speaking Christianese from the pulpit, here's why. We don't know how to explain it. There's no other... No other Way to, way to explain why we do that, other than like, that's all we can say. So, so that's what I'm tempted to do in this moment. Because the grace of God that fills us with His strength is really tricky to make tangible. Have you ever been going through something, and, and somebody asks you, or maybe they're going through something, and you ask them, you say, man, how are you getting through this? And they say something like this, God's grace. And you kind of know what they mean, but you kind of don't. What is it that they mean? I I think what the person is trying to say is is that they have all they need when they need it. That, That God's sufficient grace means this, that you'll have just the right amount of strength at just the right time. I want to illustrate this for you. I need to borrow your imagination for a moment. Imagine that in your hand is is just a simple cup. Would you see that in your mind's eye for a moment? Just a simple cup. It's empty. I want you to imagine that the emptiness represents your weakness, your thorn. But then imagine that someone directs you to a nearby hose. It's coming out of a high wall. It's a very long wall. You can't see the other side, but you try the faucet out and it works. So you turn it on and water begins to seep from the hose. It's not spraying, it's not gushing out, it's just kind of trickling. You put your cup underneath there and you hope there's enough to at least fill your cup. The water slowly moves up to the top, right to the rim of the cup, then it stops. You think to yourself, that worked out good. Now, you get the symbolism, right? The water represents God's grace, His strength, exactly what you need when you need it. Imagine that time passes, and here you come, another season of life, back to the same hose. This time you don't have a cup in your hand, you have an empty bucket. Let's make the bucket a symbol of, I don't know, a bit of a health scare, or maybe some financial issues that are pretty stressful for your family. Man, you really need some grace. You need some strength to get through this. This is a nice sized bucket and it's empty. So you walk to the same faucet, you turn on the hose, and the water comes out again. Gradually, 
filling in the bottom of the bucket, then up the sides, and once again to the rim before it stops. Exactly what you need when you need it. Time passes. You go through another season of life, and life gets hard. This time you come back to the hose, not with a cup or a, or a bucket, but a wheelbarrow. Wheelbarrow full of emptiness. Maybe you've lost your job, and with it your confidence. Maybe your marriage is in a bad place, far worse than you thought it was. Maybe you've been entrusted to take care of your aging parents, and it's eaten you alive. But you turn on the hose, and the plumbing still works. The water comes out with that familiar swish, and the, the wheelbarrow begins to fill. And you know where it stops, right at the top. You sigh with relief. Once again, there's just enough. Well, life goes on. A little bit older now, another season of life, and you got to go back to the hose. Not with a cup, not with a bucket, not with a wheelbarrow, with a semi-truck. Hauling a tank behind you the size of a trailer. This is huge. Something you're experiencing that you never thought you'd experience. Radiation treatments, a lost loved one, an affair, a child that's turned their back on you. You turn on the hose and water begins to flow into the tank, and you're absolutely certain there won't be enough for this season of my life, but it keeps on coming. For hours it flows, and, and then right when the tank won't take another drop of water, the hose runs dry. Friend, this is how the grace of God works. It gives you just what you need when you need it. In fact, however much emptiness you bring to Him, whether it's a cup, a bucket, a wheelbarrow, or a semi-trailer, that's how much grace He has to give you, and His supply never runs dry. Phil Hansen said this about his shake, we need to first be limited in order to become limitless. The Apostle Paul teaches something similar about our shake, and it's this, our complete powerlessness is a necessary precondition to experience God's total power. The weaker you are, the more of God's strength you can receive, and you will receive His strength only to the degree that you're willing to embrace your shake. If that's a really hard concept for you to accept, then I want you to think about Jesus Christ for a moment. As we close, I want you to put in your mind's eye again that man from Nazareth. When Jesus came to earth, you know he didn't come on a charter jet. He didn't walk out on the red carpet in the tux, wave to the cameras, get put on the front picture of a magazine. Jesus, the very Son of God, came in appalling weakness by way of a poor teenage girl with absolutely nothing going for her. He was wearing cheap swaddling clothes, surrounded by livestock, laying in a manger. Church, I'm afraid we've We've looked at the manger and sung about the manger so long, we've lost the point of it. We've become immune to it. 
Because our kids gather up on a stage every Christmas season. And parents and grandparents line the front of the auditorium taking pictures. As they sing, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Oh, that's so cute. You did so good. The cattle are lowing, the baby, oh, as though that's normal? That the Son of God wakes up next to cattle? We love to think of the birthplace of Jesus as this amazing place, this sweet, cute place, but it was the smelliest, nastiest, messiest delivery room imaginable. Why? Why poverty? Why a stable? Why a manger? Why Bethlehem? Why blue-collared shepherds? Do you think it all happened by chance? That God entered history in the flesh at that moment as planned before the foundation of time without doing His research? Forgot, forgot to somehow make reservations at the end for Jesus? No, He's God. I'll tell you why it was, He was born this way. Because God chooses weakness as the best setting to display His strength. Jesus became one of you so that you could live with His Father for all eternity. He became one of you so you would know today that He is well acquainted with your weakness, with your shake, with the thing right now that brings you the most stress, the most tension, the most inconvenience, the most strain, and the most pain. He's felt it, and He's been there. And He wants to give you His grace. Three statements and I'm done. Number one, number one, embrace your weakness. Embrace it. Christians, we know our biblical worldview teaches us that we are made stronger through pain. That's not a worldly idea. God sends us trials and difficulties and thorns so that we could experience Him at a whole new level. And without those, it's not possible to become stronger in His grace. And if that's the case, we need to quit playing dodgeball with pain. We need to quit dodging what God is trying to use to take us to the next level. Embrace it. Number two, receive God's grace. You embrace your weakness, then you receive God's grace. And listen, this is not a passive activity. This is active. you got to get to the hose. You got to get to the places and the people where God's grace is easily accessible. And this is, this is sometimes not natural for people going through dark times. A lot of times I found, Pastor, that when people go through dark times, they don't want to come to church. They don't want to be around worship. They don't want to congregate with God's people because it reminds them just how hurtful their life is right then. But you need the church during those times. You need your pastor during those times. 
You need God's people during those times. You need worship during those times. You need prayer during those times. You need an altar during those times. You need to serve other people through that hurt. Why? That's where God's grace is. He'll give you what you need when you need it, but you got to get to the hose. Get to your prayer closet. Get to your private worship. Get to your corporate worship. Get to the place where God's grace wants to flood your soul. So you embrace your weakness. You receive God's grace. And one more, repeat. Repeat. Bible says that God's mercies are new every month. Every morning. You ought to live in a rhythm where you go to the hose, you go about your day, and then you go back to the hose. And you go about your day, you bring a cup, you bring a bucket, you bring a wheelbarrow, you bring a semi-trailer, but you get to the hose. You go to church on Sunday, and you come back on Sunday night. And then you come back on Wednesday night, or Tuesday night. You come back the next Sunday. You get with God's people outside, you do life with God's people outside of this place. You live in that rhythm where you are embracing your weakness, receiving God's grace, and repeating. The next morning, embracing your weakness, receiving God's grace. And you do it over and over and over. God wants to make you strong, but you've got to realize that he does it through making you weak. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.